Oh, it's good to be in the house of the Lord. I love that song. I, honestly, that's something that I reflect on a lot. The day that we get to see God face to face. What a glorious day that's going to be. You know, as, as we were singing that last song, um, it's wild. I remember when me and Pastor Aaron were setting out to start this church, and I was leaving a church that had this huge praise team, and there was doubts as like, man, is it going to be me forever? And to be able to see just part of the team who don't need me, obviously, just to be able to sing the prayer. I'm, we're just so blessed, so thankful for the people God's put us, uh, put around us. For those of you who don't know me or maybe you're going to listen on the radio or online, I'm Joe and I serve as the worship pastor here. And I'm excited to be able to continue our series through the book of Romans that we're going to be in for a couple years. Um, the series is called Genius of Jesus. In the last couple weeks, Pastor Aaron's kind of walked us through kind of the introduction of Romans. Um, Pretty wild introduction where Paul just clearly shows that Jesus is the Son of God. The resurrection proved that. And then he also, it's a different letter, right? Because he's writing to a church that, rarely enough, he didn't start. And so he's writing to this, this church of Christians, these believers, that Paul never went out and actually set up this church. Most of the other letters, he's writing to churches that he set up. And yet the faith of these believers has rung out to the ear of Paul. And he's writing and he says he's eager to come to them. He can't wait to be there, to preach to them, and to have mutual encouragement from them as well. And so today we're going to pick up in verse 16 and 17. And uh, if you think it's two verses, so it'll be short, you've mistaken. Because so, this is, most agree, is the theme of the book. And what Paul says here in these two verses, he's going to then unpack in detail for the next 16 chapters. What he says here is very, very important. And so let's go ahead and let's dive in as we see what the gospel is all about. If you've if you got your Bibles, let's open them up. It'll be on the screen as well. But let's stand in honor of God's word as we read Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 16. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel, the good news of Jesus that saves sinners like us. God, be with us now as we dive into your word. God, speak through me. And uh, God, I pray that we just wouldn't leave here the same, that your word would do a work in us. I want to give you the praise, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So in these two verses, I think we're going to see three things that Paul points out. The first one is going to be a promise. Second one is the gospel, which we're going to spend the majority of time in. And then the final one is the calling of the believer. So the first thing we see here is the promise. If we look back at verse 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Remember in verse 15, last week, Paul is eager to come preach to the Romans. He's excited to come preach the gospel. Yet here in verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed which would give us cause that there must be some reason, some temptation for us to be ashamed of the gospel. See, the reality of it is, is when people oppose our beliefs, it can sometimes be embarrassing. We have this, this tendency to maybe cower back. So with the Romans, Paul's writing to them, would they have a reason to maybe be tempted to fall back, to be ashamed of the gospel? Well, it's interesting from what we know about Rome and from what we know about the citizens there, they have a a certain understanding of Jesus. So when these Christians are going to him and said, hey, you need to believe in Jesus to be saved. 
I'm sure they would have been like, you mean the guy that we crucified by his followers' demands? Yeah, 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 but he's risen. He's resurrected. But we know in the scriptures that the Greeks, they don't believe in a resurrection. Not only that, they were told something specific about the resurrection of Jesus. Do you guys remember? Matthew 28, verse 13, the guards are at the tomb. They get up. Jesus is gone. They run to the chief priest and they say, this is what happened. What do we do? Chief priests gather together. They talk. They come back and they give the guards a bunch of money. And notice what they tell them to do in Matthew 28, 13. Tell people. His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. We're told that they did that, and that story is spread. So when the Christians are talking to the Romans, they're like, hey, you know, Jesus, yeah, he was crucified, but he did that for your sins, and now he's resurrected. They had to have been like, no, he didn't. We know what happened. His disciples stole his body, right? And they probably would accuse him, you're believing in a lie. See, there's a tr- temptation for us to be ashamed when somebody opposes the truth. Paul himself, a Roman citizen, he's eager to go back to Rome. This is where he was born, right? Yet for the gospel's sake, he was laughed at, mocked, arrested, beaten, stoned, and left for dead. Yet he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Remember in Philippians and Galatians, we went through those two books. We're told that Paul was a Pharisee. Okay, The Pharisee is an elite religious leader. What they had to do to become a Pharisee is incredible. The memorization of Scripture, all these different things. And we know that he was the perfect Pharisee. Pharisees also, apart from Scripture, had added all these laws you had to follow. And Paul tells us in Philippians that he was perfect in those on an outward stance, right? And then he tells his Pharisee buddies, hey, that stuff doesn't matter. Just believe in Jesus. I'd imagine something would have been like this. I said, Paul, are you out of your mind? Are you a fool? You think all this stuff that God, because you know, this is God's stuff, right? all the stuff God set up doesn't matter. You just got to believe in Jesus. Paul, remember Jesus got his power from Satan. Remember, they're the ones who said that. When Jesus is doing these miracles, they accuse him that you're doing this under the power of Satan. I said, Paul, you're crazy for believing this. Paul faced extreme opposition. And he says, I'm not ashamed. We have the same temptation to be ashamed in where we live today, right? We're calling people to believe in Jesus, who was born, God, born as a man, died for our sins, resurrected, only one ever, and said he's coming back, and that was 2,000 years ago. People look at us as like we're crazy too, right? We also live in what I think is a unique time, this view that there is no God, this is very, very new, and I just it's a pet peeve of mine. Nowhere in human history did people believe there wasn't a God. That's the most foolish thing to pretend that all this happened by chance. Yet we live in a time that they even reject a God. There's great temptation for us to be ashamed of the gospel. Paul writes to Timothy the same way. He says in 2 Timothy 1.8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of, his, nor of me, his prisoner, But share in suffering for the gospel of the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that the gospel is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly or foolishness to the Gentiles. We're going to face opposition. But Paul says, I am not ashamed. And here's what's neat. This is the reality that you and I won't be ashamed either. See, Paul makes a statement as fact. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. And I missed this the first time I kept reading this. Paul's not like you and I. 
Paul's not just writing a letter to some friends like you and I would. He's not defending himself about not being ashamed. Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God's word. And he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, this is similar, but not, not at all what we do when we say, I don't care what anyone thinks. This is what I believe, right? Paul's not saying that because to say that, it really has to do with pride, and usually when someone says, I don't care what you think, this is what I believe, usually it's because they have very little confidence in what they actually believe. Paul here, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is not motivated by pride. He's motivated by God. So when he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, there's much more that meets the eye here. The word ashamed means disgraced, which means to be singled out for their misplaced confidence, to be personally humiliated for being wrong. Disgrace is the fitting shame for the heir of wrongly identifying with something. And Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's true. He says it this way in Romans chapter 5. When he talks about where to rejoice in our suffering, knowing that we're justified, knowing that we're God's children, the suffering that's squeezing us down will not crush us. It serves a purpose. He says this in verse 4. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. Now notice this. And hope does not put us to shame. This is a fact. The hope that we have in Jesus will not put us to shame. We will not be disgraced for believing something that's wrong because this is the truth. He says in Philippians 1.20, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. It doesn't matter if he lives or dies. He will not be ashamed because what he believes in is the truth. And again, Paul's not like you and I. He's speaking the words of God. If we go back to 2 Timothy 1, where Paul tells Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony, but also don't be ashamed to me, his prisoner, you know. And this is during a time when your God, how good he was, really showed about you, right? If you're being blessed, he must be good. If you're being cursed, how can you worship a God like that? And then Paul, speaking of his own sufferings, in that context, in verse 12 says, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until the day that, he has, been, that has been entrusted to me. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is convinced that what he believes in will carry him all the way until the return of Christ. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. You and I won't be ashamed of the gospel because it's the truth. It's a promise of God. Second thing we see here is the gospel. And as I mentioned, we're going to unpack this a little bit. We're going to spend some time in here. And at the very end, I am going to give you kind of how I understand the gospel, what helps me. But as we look at the gospel, it's the good news. And we're going to see as we unpack this why it's so important for us to really understand what's going on here. The gospel is the good news of Jesus. But in order to be good news is based on the context, right? So say... You did something wrong. You deserve to be punished for it. You have a debt that needs paid or whatever. And somebody comes up and says, I forgive you. I forgive the debt, right? That's good news. Take that same news and some random person walks up to you and says, hey, I forgive you and you don't owe me anything. I know about you, but I'm like, who are you? What are you talking about? I'm like, I don't even know you, right? So the gospel is good news, but it's good news based on the context, Okay, so we're going to get to what the gospel is, 
But first, before we, we, we're too quick to run to these definite, let's see what, what Paul says about the gospel, which is going to help form us what the appropriate gospel actually is. And I, we always need to start with Scripture. Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. Now, when I read this, I just stopped. When you see the power of God, that's an incredible statement, right? The gospel is the power of God. This word power comes from the ancient Greek word pronounced dunamis, but it's spelled dynamis, and it's where we get the word dynamite. You see this explosive power. So God's power is on display in the gospel. Makes us think back of maybe the creation story, right? Where God's power was on display as he spoke things into existence. Heard a pastor talk one time that he had this member that wanted, he's like, I just wish I would have been there when God spoke everything to an existence. And while that would have been cool, the pastor says, no, you wouldn't have. Because <laughs> when God had created the sun and just spoke it, pfft, said you wouldn't have been able to stand in that, right? So as cool as it would be for us to be there, we sometimes dumb down the power of God. So all throughout Scripture, we see God's power on display. But here with the gospel, there's a specific purpose that is being used. And I would argue it's the greatest purpose that God's power is used for. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is God's power put on display to save sinners. It has a specific purpose. And when I read this, it made me think of John chapter 20, where he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What John tells us is that the Bible does not contain every thought, every action, and everything said by God. It doesn't contain everything that Jesus thought, did, and said. Yet what it does contain is exactly what you and I need to believe in him. The gospel is no different. We are given the gospel, which is what is necessary to be saved, nothing more, nothing less. So what does salvation mean? It's important for us in a church to talk about this stuff. Because if I ask you, how do you know you're saved, or what does it mean to be saved, we're going to come up with different things. And the reason we're going to come up with different things is the Bible talks about it in different ways. But before we run to a definition, let's run to Scripture, right? The word salvation means deliverance. Now, to be delivered, it, from what? Like that's a, you gotta, if you're going to be delivered, you have to be delivered from something. So what does it mean when you're delivered by the power of God? What is it that we need delivered from? It's sin, right? We know that. Sin has separated us from God. Salvation delivers us from sin. When God created us, he told us to trust and obey. We didn't do that. In fact, me and Pastor Aaron were talking about this. Starting in verse 18, for the next probably three or four chapters, Paul's going to talk about sin. He's going to talk about the wrath of God coming out, and I just want to highlight a few of those because sin is something we need to be delivered from. Verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23, and the wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. See, the penalty of sin has always been death. I was reminded of this this week, too, that I think sometimes when we look at Scripture, old and new, we start to see, we, we wonder if God has changed, maybe, like he's, he got upset and did this. It's fascinating. Before sin was ever an issue, what did he tell Adam? He said, I have given you everything, everything you need, but do not eat of that tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you do, you will surely die. 
Before sin was ever a thing, the penalty was always going to be death. When we're saved, we're delivered from the penalty of sin. Now, that's important. That's a huge part of the gospel. And I've heard people just, Jesus loves you. That's true. But again, that's not good news unless you understand the context. Why is that good news if some people think, yeah, he should love me? I'm a great person, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's important for us to understand that if we're going to be saved, it's from something. It's not saved to just do this or saved to a better life. It's saved from sin. Now, again, so for us to understand salvation, let's look at how it's used in the Bible. The most common way we see it is the plea for the sinner. And we're going to see why this sometimes causes us issue if we stop right here. Romans 10, 9, Paul says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, 13, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Acts 16, 31, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. See, the purpose of the gospel is to save. Who's it for? Everyone who believes, Paul says, right? Now, I've heard some people say that they're either excited that their church preaches the gospel every Sunday because you never know when the sinner's coming in, or they kind of get annoyed with it because we're Christians, we know this. See, both of them are assuming something that's just not true. They're assuming that the gospel is only for the sinner. Yet Paul says the gospel is the power of God for everyone who believes. And though we see Scripture calling the sinner to repent to be saved, we also see Scripture talking about the Christian and the gospel is for us as well for the rest of our lives. We see the plea for the sinner. Now I want us to look at how the Bible describes the Christian and this salvation. And we see it in three different tenses, a past, present, and future tense. And this is where we get a lot of confusion, a lot of different denominations. We split off of this stuff. The Bible is very, very clear. Pastor Aaron talked about this last week. This past, present, future is justification, sanctification, glorification, right? Justification where we're made right with God. Sanctification where we're conformed into His image. Glorification, ultimately when we go to heaven, get a new body, and we're freed from the sin. So let's look at these verses. And for the sake of time, there's countless verses. The Bible is very clear on this, but I'm just going to use one for each one. And they're all from Paul. That way we can see, you know, we, we understand what he's saying here. The first tense is the past tense in which a Christian has been saved from the guilt and penalty of sin. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved. This speaks of something that's already happened. The moment you believe, you've been saved. You've been justified. When we think of this word justification, it's an incredible Incredible word. It means to be declared divinely righteous. When you believe in Jesus, you are declared divinely righteous. It means that you have his righteousness on you. God looks at me and he doesn't see the sinner Joe. He sees the blood of Jesus. But see, behind that blood is still Joe, still the messed up Joe. And thankfully, that's why we see it said this way in the present tense, in which the Christian is being saved from the habit and dominion of sin. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 2, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now some will run to this verse very quickly and say, See, you're not saved yet. You are, you are being saved only if you hold fast. Now I want us to go back to this verse because Paul, it, it, it can't be said any more clear. Paul says, the gospel I preach to you, which by the way is how 
you, you know, you, you're saved by hearing and hearing the word of God. So Paul preached this gospel, which you received and in which you stand. He's speaking to Christians who have been justified, who have been saved. And then he says, by the gospel, but which are also being saved if you hold fast. The reality of it is, is you will, because this isn't on you. This sanctification is not on you. You brought nothing to the table. You're the one who needs a savior. You're not your savior. He says, unless you believed in vain, the reality of it is, all throughout Scripture, those ones who say they believe and fall away were the ones who didn't actually believe because God loses none. What does Jesus say? All that the Father gives me, I'll, I'll hold on to it. No one can pluck them out of my hand. No one can pluck them out of the Father's hand. I mean, we are secure in Christ. Paul says it this way in Philippians 1, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Thank God that the process till we get to heaven is not up to you and me because we're masters at screwing things up i think of galatians where paul says are you so foolish having begun by the spirit are you now perfected by the flesh and this is where a lot of the hang-up gets among christian churches is that you're not saved yet if you sin it's over all the reality of it is is these three tenses are salvation just like the trinity is three in one you can't have one without the other it's a free gift of God. When you're justified, you are now going to be sanctified until one day you're glorified. So we see we've been saved. We see that we're being saved. And one day we see the gospel, we will be saved. This future tense in which the Christian will be saved at the return of Christ from the curse of sin. Paul says in Romans 5, 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Again, speaking to a Christian who has been justified, someone who's been saved, someone who's been declared divinely righteous. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. There's still something to come. There's a reason we're not in heaven yet. He says it again in verse 10, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved in his life. Friends, the reality of it is, is we're justified, meaning that God looks at me and sees the blood of Jesus covering me. Praise God for that. We're also being sanctified, meaning every single day God is conforming me into the likeness of Christ. Praise God for that. And one day we will be glorified, meaning that we will get rid of this body that's cursed with sin and will be given a new body to reign with the Lord and share in Jesus' glory, the Bible says, for all of eternity. Praise God for that. Now it leaves us asking, how can this happen just by believing in Jesus? This is where I would say thanks for asking. But actually Paul would say thanks for asking. If we look at verse 17, he says, For in it, meaning the gospel, for in it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. This phrase, righteousness of God, is used in, it could be like justification. It's used in different terms. It all means the same thing. But it is a righteousness from God. And this phrase is used over 50 times in the letter of Rome. It's Romans. It's a big deal. Justification is where we get God's righteousness. And that is revealed in the gospel from faith for faith. Now this righteousness, though, it's not like, it's not our righteousness. Again, going back to the sanctification, we don't do anything. Isaiah said our righteousness is filthy rags to God. This is God's righteousness because we have to be righteous like God. Peter quotes Leviticus as God said in 1 Peter 1.16, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. We have to be righteous, yet we're not. You and I are not. We have, there's a problem. 
In Romans chapter 3, we're told, None is righteous, not one. For all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 23. And Jesus says, No one is good except God alone. And you get, the list goes on and on and on. We're not good enough. Job even asked this question in Job 9, 2. He says, By how can a man be right in front of God? Like, how can man stand before God? How is this possible? So the question to ask is, how, how is it? We have to be this way, so what is it? Faith or works? And that's the issue with Paul. In all of his letters, he specifically goes after this idea that you somehow earn it by works instead of believing it's by faith, which it truly is. So when I mentioned again in verse 17, Paul says, I'm glad you asked, how is this possible? He says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Your Bible might say, from faith to faith. Faith from start to finish. Or start to finish from first to last. The question of where does it come from, is righteousness from faith or works, is clear in the gospel. It's not by works, it's by faith. Paul specifically says this, we go back to Galatians 2.16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. He also says uh, later in Romans... For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Verse 28, he says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Works can't save you. Yet over and over and over, we see Christians running to that. We see this idea that I've got to earn my salvation, but the gospel is clear and it's revealed that it's from faith. See, God gave us the law and the law is perfect. And if we could do the law, we would be righteous. The law is not the problem we are. Paul says this in Romans 9.32, Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness. Again, the law would lead to righteousness. They did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. If you're going to follow the law, you have to follow the law. And that's the only way to be righteous, yet we can't follow the law. Galatians 3.10, Paul says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. To be perfect by the law, you have to actually do the law perfectly. See, that's the bad news. God demands perfection. He gave a law, yet we didn't meet it. I'm amazed when I talk to people. See, the reality of his righteousness is innocence. And I've talked to so many people who say, look, I, I, this is what I've come to understand, that as long as I be the best me, then that's enough. I just got to better myself. I got to do the best I possibly can do. And that's all that God can expect of me. And I said, well, I agree with you that something needs to change. I agree with you that there's a standard you're trying to chase. My problem is, is what do you do the moment you recognize you messed up? How do you fix that? The reality of it is, is God demands perfection. He demands innocence. And the second you realize you sin, guess what? You're no longer innocent. And there's nothing you can do to fix that. If I kill somebody and I plead for forgiveness, if they forgive me, I'm still not innocent of that crime. I still committed that crime. God demands perfection. And I think sometimes we get caught up in this because of how we deal with sin. We deal with sin differently than God because we're sinners. We're more sympathetic because we understand our own state. We've got to understand God is separate from that. God is perfect and holy and righteous and just. He can't even look upon sin and he demands innocence. The fact that you say you're sorry means nothing unless you accept the free gift that he's given. When we look at sin, Hebrews tells us that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. The only way to fix this problem is to die. 
Now the, the gospel, the good news, right? Good news is dependent on the context. Remember, we read earlier, for the wages of sin is death. In Romans 6.23, but now notice the good news. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Friends, that's good news. You didn't fulfill the law, but Jesus fulfilled it for you. You sinned and deserved to die, and Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin and died for you. You have to be righteous to inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus is righteous, and he gives that righteousness to you. Praise God. Good news, the work's been done, and all you have to do is believe in Jesus. You have to call on him to be saved. Not just say you believe, but believe that he's the way to make all this right. The work's already been done. The gospel's the good news of Jesus, available to everyone. And I want to look at the final point. It's brief, and then we'll be done. We see the calling at the end of verse 17. Paul says, For as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, I love this because Paul's quoting from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. And the reason I love that is because, again, sometimes we separate the Old Testament and the New Testament. We see God give the law, so it looks like it's based on works. And then over here, Jesus comes and he changes it. Not true. We go back all the way to Abraham. He believed and it was counted to him as righteousness, right? He's the father of faith. Here in Habakkuk 2, it says, The righteous shall live by faith. God gave the law to show our need of a Savior. But it was always his intent to send one. We've been justified, declared divinely righteous by grace alone, through faith alone. Therefore, we're to continue our lives in faith alone. So I urge you not to fall for the trap that the Galatians did, the temptation of the Romans, what every Christian faces, to run back to this idea that just belief in Jesus is not enough. I loved when we walked through Galatians, Paul made it so clear. It's like he, over and over in his letters, he says, this gospel that you believe, it saved you. You know it did. The Bible tells us his spirit talks to our spirit and confirms we're children of God, right? He bears witness to us. We know this happened. Don't run away from that. Don't be tempted to go away just because the world opposes you. Jesus says, in this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. People are not just going to fall over and trust. They crucified Jesus because of this message, but we're not to waver in that. We've been saved by this, by faith alone, and we're going to be, stay, you know, we're going to be saved until the end by faith alone. So when he says the righteous shall live by faith, it's a call for us to do that, but it's also a statement that the righteous shall live by faith. The reality of it is those that are righteous will live by faith. Now, I mentioned I wanted to give a kind of a, just a help guide of the gospel. I know a couple a year ago, maybe Pastor Aaron did the three circles, which is a great display of the gospel. There's an app for that. But I want to give you what I was taught that helps me. It's not as cool, but it just helps me kind of think of it. So I see that the gospel in four stages the first one is creation. It'll be on the screen. Creation reminds us that there's a creator. If there's a creator, then his creation is accountable to him. He makes the rules. Again, he says, trust and obey me. That's the rules. Yet we didn't. If you think you've done nothing, we can go to John on that. But even Adam, it's passed down from him, right? So the second thing we see is the fall. We've sinned against the holy God. We sinned against our creator. We're accountable to him because he created us. That's the bad news. Then the good news, the redemption. Jesus came. Jesus paid for our sin debt. Jesus lived the life you couldn't live, paid the sin you deserved, and then gives you the benefit of what he did. And the final thing that we're living in right now is we're looking forward to the restoration. We're looking forward to the moment when we get to be completely restored to God. Where we get to, as the song was sung, we get to see God face to face. Think about that. Anyone who looked upon the face of God would surely die in the Old Testament because of sin. Now, 
when we're restored, when we're glorified, we get to see the face of God. What a perfect, perfect just end of the story. So I'm going to ask the praise team to come as we reflect on the gospel. If you just bow your heads as we just take a moment. I want to give an opportunity for anyone who maybe hasn't called on Jesus to save them. Someone who doesn't know the Lord is their Savior. Sadly, we, we see in Matthew 24 that there's going to be those who come to God and say, Lord, I did this in your name. He's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. I'm going to say, Lord, Lord, we did this in your name. And depart from me, I never knew you. Friends, you can't earn your salvation. It is a free gift from God. Your part in that is to believe in Jesus as the one who offers the gift. So if that's you today, I pray, I plead with you to not leave here today without making that decision. I encourage you, if you need to pray with somebody, to do that. To come down to the, to the front, to the altar, if you want to do that. Talk with me or Pastor Aaron. But if God has opened your eyes to the gospel, respond. And for those who know the Lord, I want us to remind us that the gospel is for us as well, each and every day. We're told that his mercies are made new every day because we need them every single day. Let us never get over the gospel, which is the power of God on display. And think about this. When we go to share the gospel, God just lets us in on his power. What a magnificent thing. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel, the good news of Jesus. God, we have sinned against the holy God. And left to ourselves, the punishment's death and eternity separated from you. But praise God, you sent Jesus, who did what we couldn't do. God, I pray that you would just speak to us in a mighty way as we respond through song. God, don't let us leave here the same, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.